If you look at the exhibition catalogs for some of EJ's exhibitions, you'll see the choruses of people that she collaborated with. These catalogs feel like Easter eggs. Like there's so much work that went into them in hopes of someone stumbling upon them years and years later. They are a window into a world, a certain time, a certain place, one specific moment in history. In the exhibition catalog for EJ's 1968 exhibition, New Perspectives in Black Art, there's this section in the back called A Collage of Black Voices Creating a Picture of What Black Art Is. And that's exactly what it is. It's this collage of EJ's friends and collaborators, members of her arts advocacy group, AWAN, exploring what Black art means in 1968. On this page, you can see some familiar names and voices, like Ruth Waddy from a few episodes back. But there's one quote from one person in particular that really stood out to me. Black art is a visual articulation of soul. Its essence is telling it like it is. It socks it to you. These artists of the now generation fully telling it how it is. This quote comes from a woman named Sarah Webster Fabio. One of EJ's most celebrated exhibitions, next to her New Perspectives in Black Art show, is a retrospective show on Sergeant Johnson that she curated at the Oakland Museum in 1971. Now, this exhibition was a big deal. There was lots of hype around it. There were events with music and dance, and it received lots of national attention. EJ absolutely loves Sergeant Johnson's work. He's another important figure in California's Black art history. He was one of the first Black artists in California to gain a national reputation. Born in 1888, Johnson was a painter, potter, ceramicist, printmaker, and sculptor. An artist of many mediums, just like EJ. A lot of his sculptural works and prints represent faces and shapes of Black people busts and full-body sculptures of Black women standing tall and proud, and he lived in Berkeley for part of his life. A few months ago, I went to the African American Museum and Library downtown to check out the catalog for this exhibition. I flipped through EJ's notes about the exhibition, where she says about Sergeant Johnson, quote, here is a person and an artist of great magnitude, unquote. I turn to the back of the catalog where EJ thanks all of the people involved in the creation of this exhibition. And in a sea full of names, I recognized a familiar one, Sarah Webster Fabio. But it's, uh, it is a richness that uh, I, I understand so much about stuff because of hanging around, particularly my mother. But my mother and, and EJ for a while were like, they were uh, sewn together at the hip. And they operated like sisters, like sisters of a uh, common cause, where your own sisters, you know, might be into completely different worlds, but they operated like that. And, and they, were, uh, they were partners in, uh, partners in art, I was gonna say partners in crime, but the partners in art. That's Sarah Fabio's daughter, 
Cheryl Fabio. She's an artist and a filmmaker herself. And I sat down to speak with her about her mom, her relationship to EJ, and the huge impact she had on the Bay Area Black Arts Movement. I am the daughter of Sarah Webster Fabio. I'm one of five of her children. And um, I would have to say, well, you know, each of us had a really interesting, we had five different mothers, right? In one person. So I kind of had the one, I had the experience with my mother as someone who was very politically involved. Sarah Webster Fabio was a poet, scholar, performer, educator, and so much more. Like her daughter said, she contained multitudes. She's a black woman like EJ that I don't believe has gotten the recognition that she deserves. There's not too many resources about Sarah online, but if you give her name a quick Google search, you can find a JSTOR article on her called The Mother of Black Studies. That's because Sarah was teaching at Merritt College around the same time as Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale were organizing and sprouting the ideas that would later become the Black Panther Party in 1966. While all of this was happening, Sarah was deeply involved in the Bay Area Black art scene with EJ. And she was taking these ideas about Black art and the Black arts movement and bringing them into the classroom with her students at Merritt College, engaging with students that would later go on to shape a cultural and political revolution. And we advocate that all black people in America are taught what politics is all about and what our history is all about so that we can have self-identity and we can know where our strength is. We will know our enemies and we'll know our friends. Uh, this is a black curriculum. She centered blackness in the classroom before it was ever formalized or institutionalized. And after her time at Merritt College, she went on to places like UC Berkeley and California College of Arts and Crafts to help build some of the first Black Studies programs in the country. Looking back and reading Sarah's poetry now, you can see that she was working through Blackness, specifically Black language, as something that was worthy of rigorous study and attention. As someone who studied these ideas in college and now in graduate school, I feel like I'm on the path that she set out. Here's Cheryl Fabio again. But she was like 50 years ahead of her time. If she was speaking today, she, she would have got, I'm, I'm sure she would have gotten a PhD. But that, that kind of, uh, well, truth telling, first of all, and also the ability to like con con uh, contextualize whatever it is you're saying. Uh, she had all of that going on, but, you know, that was kind of like an assimilationist era. Or even we didn't know to challenge the history as we were being told. By sitting with Sarah Webster Fabio's work, in this episode, I think we can learn a thing or two about how we'll move, speak, perform, and engage in our Black art futures. We'll explore what it means to find your voice, artistically and politically, and we'll think about how we'll make work and theorize about it. Sarah gives us examples about what it means to hold blackness as something beautiful to study from all angles. Cheryl tells me that it's through seeing her mom and EJ interact that she learned what it means to be an artist. And so I spent a lot of time around EJ, but 
my perspective is not as a professional artist, even though I, I have to say that uh, even me and the strange way things happen, EJ played a role in me becoming an artist. But at the time that I knew her, uh, I dare not think that. In fact, you know, like when you when I think about it, I couldn't possibly think that because through EJ and my mother, I met some of the nations, maybe even uh, internationally, some of the strongest black artists that they were. Cheryl says her mom was the kind of person who she would randomly stumble upon on the street at her college campus, not even knowing that her mom was in the state. That's how on the move she was. She was politically active. I asked Cheryl what other words she would use to describe her mom. Well, I think, like, I could think of a million different words. I mean, she's a very soulful person. And, you know, I, I sometimes I scratch my head trying to figure out, well, when did she become that, right? Because... Our early, my so my mom is from the South. She's from Nashville. She was raised by, a, my granddad was a blue collar. He was a blueprint worker at the railroad. And his, my grandmother died when their six kids were, were young. I think my mom was about 14. Like EJ, Sarah was really dedicated to learning and education. She had graduated from college when she was 18 and also had a child that same year. She studied and wrote poetry, eventually getting her master's. Cheryl talks about her parents changing and evolving and becoming more politicized and artistically oriented before her very eyes. That it was an active decision for both of them. So it could be that in making the decision to complete her education and then where she was doing it and the moment that she did it in. You know, the next thing I knew, I had these bohemian parents and I spent a lot of time trying to play catch up. Like, wait a minute, how did that, how did that happen? How did we like, I mean, they were very bohemian in, in any way. They're having to be politically active just to have a life. And then as my mom went back to school and made a conscious decision, yes, I will be a poet. And, and you know, like it's not frivolous to write poetry. Poetry has a place, an important place, and makes important statements in the 60s. Almost from the beginning, I was a poet. When I last talked to EJ, she told me a bit about her time with Sarah Webster Fabio, that they were kind of always chasing each other, motivating one another, that she learned so much from her. Cheryl says that one day in the early 70s, her mom decided to take some of her poems that she had written during this time and perform them instead of just having them written on the page. It was a sudden decision, but Cheryl tells me that for her mom, it felt natural. Uh, and so, you know, I think the most natural thing she did was record her poetry to music because that ended up speaking to her musical sense, you know, the the way she reads poetry, you know, I've known some amazing writers and it's really hard for me to hear them read their work. But my mother always uh, 
the way she would read her poetry, you could see it and feel it. And, you know, it had a rhythm and her voice had a rhythm and all of that. So, you know, she recorded these Folkways albums in about 1974, 75. And it just felt like the, the most natural things she could have done. And it's the only reason most people know about her. These albums that Sarah recorded with Folkways, they are most of what you can find about her online. She recorded them with Cheryl's brothers playing music in the background. Dozens and dozens of songs. Songs like The Hand That Rocks, Black World, If We Come As Soft As Rain, and My Own Thing. Here's this woman who doesn't necessarily have a book written about her, but has this huge and rich musical catalog that you can browse on Spotify. Cheryl tells me that her mom was strategic about preserving her legacy. Yeah, which, which to me, I kept thinking, wow, she's, she's on to something. She, you know, like she's securing her legacy. It's watching somebody go through, and, and, and I'll tell you that uh, right before she did all of that, she had had a really bad car accident. And in fact, they didn't think she was going to make it. And then for maybe six months or a year, like her mouth was wired closed. She was in a cast. Her hand was, I mean, it was a mess. It it fractured her face, all of this stuff. So when she came out of that, she came out of that with a vengeance and did like, she was like hyper motivated. Cheryl goes on to tell me what it was like for her the first time that she stumbled upon her mom's work online. So my brothers are playing the music in the background. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were just my brothers, right? But all of a sudden there's this band. So I always thought of them as my just my brothers playing music in the background. But when I discovered maybe 20 years after she had passed, 30 years after she had passed, this friend of mine had a uh, search engine. It was one of the first search engines that came out. And he said, oh, Cheryl, you need to try this. And so I said, okay, well, what do I do? He said, well, just put somebody in the search engine. My mother had been dead for like 30 years. So I maybe I typed my name first, but then I typed her name. There were like six, there were like 17,000 hits on her. People... Mm-hmm. From all over, literally from all over. I was shocked out of my brain. I had no idea of this. And I started like reaching out to those people saying, hey, why do you know? Why do you know about my mom? And punk rockers in Ireland. I mean, it was the most bizarre experience. Um, But then I, you know, I said, she certainly, you know, she secured her place, even though, I think her career was just truncated because she died young and because Mm -hmm. she had to spend so much time being a parent. You know, having five kids is not a joke. When Cheryl was in film school in 1976, her mom asked her to make a film about her, about her life, using some of these recordings of her performing with her family band. It's called Rainbow Black, and it became Cheryl's master thesis. The footage is bright and stunning, shot on film that is surprisingly crisp and clear. 
Sarah died three years after the film was made. But with this film, she still very much feels alive, almost leaping off the screen. Each time we meet, I am simply not always my same old self. Sometimes you say I seem to be walking in a dream and not of this world. And so it is. Then again, I am so of the world, so earthy. I am one with rock, flower, beast, man. And I guess I just wonder, do you think that your mom gets all the recognition that she should? My mother died at 52. So, you know, when you think about, but this is a woman, a black womanish story. Because we also didn't have any maids or any of that. I mean, you know, sometimes she'd get a little bit of help. So she's raising children. My dad had issues. My dad became an alcoholic. She had that to manage, and she embarked on this career, this art career, in a time where um, being black and certainly being female wasn't going to make it easy. And then I think about how far she went with it. I mean, if, if she'd had a chance, right? If she'd had a chance, I think she would have been a force worth reckoning. Our poems from a jazz impulse, the blues, uh, such as Juju, Alchemy of the Blues, comes from the blues experience uh, as a very essential part of our heritage. Two of my favorite thinkers are writer Hanif Abdur-Aqib and scholar Daphne Brooks, two people that I feel so lucky to know. They both write about Black women's contributions to contemporary music, and both of their most recent book projects dig into Black performance, specifically Black women's neglected genius, by zooming in on performances of Black women singers from the 20th and 21st century. They write from someone like Mary Clayton to Beyonce and how they pioneered the sound of modern music, even though they rarely get their flowers for doing so. Daphne and Hanif are both so gifted at painting scenes of Black women's performances and outlining all the talent, technique, history, and practice genius that they carry with them to the mic. Now, Sarah Webster Fabio wasn't a singer. Cheryl makes that clear, but she was a theorist and performer of Black language and someone who thought about it incessantly, someone who researched it long before it was commonplace to do so. For the past 10 years, I've been very involved in a Black research project uh, on Black talk called Soul, Shield, and Sword, where I trace uh, Black language through my grandmother's influence back to a kind of African survival form. As a black woman poet, I can just explore what the essence of my own being has been. The full spectrum of my life's work, which includes um, 
moods and tones that uh, reflect uh, uh, a very wide range of responses to what it has been to be a black woman here in the 20th century living in America. Yes, you are a poet. I want to take a moment to paint a picture, a scene. I want to borrow from Hanif and Daphne for a second. And I want to think about what it was like for Sarah to step into the spotlight, like all the other Black women who did so when it couldn't have been easy. To stand with conviction and to know that what she was doing was important and worthy of being documented back in the late 60s and early 70s. I want to think about what it must have been like for her in that room with her family band, surrounded by her sons on instruments and her daughter filming it. I want to think about all that she carried with her, having been in a car accident not too long before, that her face was actually still swollen from some of her injuries while she recorded this. Did she bring that Nashville blues upbringing with her to the mic? the sounds and feelings of the Bay Area Black Arts Movement. I want to think about that feeling that boiled within her, that now was the time to reinvent herself, her sound, and to cement her legacy. In his most recent book, A Little Devil in America, Hanif Abdurraqib writes, quote, There is a history of Black performers, specifically Black women, seamlessly reinventing and evolving without the clumsiness that seems to sometimes plague artists who make grandiose artistic shifts, unquote. Now, I have to be honest, I'm not much of a poet. So I wanted to call in some reinforcement to sit with Sarah Webster Fabio's poetic gifts to the world. I stay on my bullshit. I'm Nappy Nina, MC, writer, sometimes producer, um, from East Oakland, California. Grew up all over the Bay though. So shout out to Union City and the Burbs. <laughs> Nina currently lives in Brooklyn, but she's originally from the Bay Area. This is our first time talking to each other. But when I called my dad telling him that I was going to do this interview, I learned that Nina and I's dads were childhood best friends growing up together in West Oakland. Nina's dad, Greg Bridges, is something of a Bay Area radio legend and music head. I, I kind of want to ask more than just like, oh, how do you feel like your dad's work influences your work? I guess I'm curious, like, are you guys kind of ever in conversation with each other about like your work and your music? I think to him now, it's just like a hilarious joke because, uh, you know, he really wanted me to like, he really like forced me into certain art roles and like really wanted me to be a musician. And like, he was very adamant about these things that I fought hard against and I was like never like I'll never be on the radio I'll never do these things and like you know now I'm doing all the things that he thought I would be doing so to him I think he's just like ha 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 like (laughs) jokes on you 
I sat down with Nina to listen to some of Sarah's music, to get her thoughts on it as a poet, writer, and MC. In my eyes, there are deep connections and resonances between what Sarah was doing 60 years ago and the music that Nina releases now. And in that knowledge grew a divine grace, which marked the character of her life. Yeah, I think uh, when I was first listening to her, I feel like the first thing that came to mind was like, this is actually a little bit more challenging than some rapping because uh, you still have to make words that weren't necessarily written to the beat sound good. And she does still make it sound good with like, Mm. but it's like such a spread out cadence where like, you know, when I write raps, it's like I know exactly pretty much where they're going to fit. But I right. feel like that really felt like she was just on stage and, you know, had the poem and was like, all right, we're going to make this work. And, like, that is just, that feels amazing to me. And then also just the energy. Like, you can really feel it through. Like, I have a certain image of what that performance must have looked like. Um, but... I feel like she was really able to, as a lot of artists were during that time, just like grab you in from the first, first, mm-hmm. first line. You know what I'm saying? There was no, there was no playing around about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did you first start getting into rapping? I mean, did you like, like a lot of Bay Area folks, did you start out with like poetry? Like how did you kind of develop this interest? Yeah. I'm one of those Bay Area kids who, uh, I started at You Speaks, um, a lot of, you know, writing workshops. Uh, two of my mentors who I shout out all the time, Lauren Whitehead and Jose Body, were like people who were in my corner and just <laughs> helping me write and figure it out. And uh, Kira Traber as well. Um, just all writers from the Bay who were kind of just like, yeah, like, do your thing. And that kind of just allowed me to write poems, but I wasn't really doing well in the Poetry Slam world like I was always a rapper and rappers don't really do well in that scene too much um mm. so I feel like once I realized that because at first I didn't recognize that I thought I was just like not good at the poetry thing but then once I recognized like it was actually hip-hop was like where I was better and gravitating to more than like things started opening up for me in my mind like what I could mm. really do awesome so, do you, like, remember, like, the first beat or, like, the first track you rapped on? Like, can you tell me about that moment and what that was like? <laughs> I really don't remember that. But I remember, like, some of the first songs I would I would have on repeat. And it, they kind of make me cringe because it's so cliche. Like, Nas is one mic. I remember the first time I heard that. And I feel like that was probably one of the first beats I tried to rap on. But, like, with his vocals in the background. Because it wasn't... We didn't have YouTube. We weren't, like, just looking up instrumentals, you know? And I was just, right. like trying to rap over those myself. Um, but I was also blessed to know a lot of producers in, in high school and, like, homies who were just making beats and were just super into it. And they were just like, yo, like... So I'm sure some of my first beats that I rapped over were, like, homies stuff. Who were like, yeah. yeah. If you kind of, like, had to choose, like, some inspirations or, like, if you're just kind of in, like, a constellation of, like, artists, like, from, like, the past or from the 20th century, like, are there any folks that, you, like, you really kind of draw inspiration from? Any artists? Yeah, definitely. Um, like, artists and also just being from Oakland, like, you know, 
we have we have just like the funk is there like the mm. blues is there the r&b is there like everything is there like i've heard all, i heard all that stuff growing up but mm-hmm. i feel like growing up around uh so many visual artists in the bay as well was super influential to me too like my sound um totally yeah like keith williams and um just like isu arinda day and like a whole bunch of folks who were just making like really beautiful visual things while i was learning how to make music Mm. And I mean, you totally hit the nail on the head, which is like, it's also like this, like, there's so much happening in the Bay in terms of like the evolution of the music. Like you have the blues clubs in West Oakland, you have some jazz clubs in Fillmore, you have the blues kind of slowly turning into funk, like through the 60s and 70s by just focusing more on like the one. So I think like the fact that there's just like so much there, it's like there's so much to pull from. And I, I see you doing that in your work. And I feel like when you think about, you know, some of the main Bay Area rappers, like Too Short, E-40 and all them, like, they used they used to rap over funk beats all the time, especially Too Short, you know, like, the, the beats that you hear are super funky, super, you have to be in the car to, like, appreciate them type shit, and I draw a lot of influence for that, too. And I think playing with uh, jazz musicians, especially in the past, like, two years, I've been blessed to get, like, so many, sit in with so many amazing jazz musicians. Um, that has been, like, boot camp for me to just, to rap over anything in any way, because they kind of just throw you up there, and they're just like, yeah, do what you can. Yeah. Like, so that kind of segues perfectly into my next question. You were talking about this kind of like community of like jazz musicians that um, you've been playing with. And um, looking back at this period of like the 1960s, early 70s, I mean, like these like black art scenes were just like little pockets of like community where people were just like putting each other on and like putting featuring each other in exhibitions and it was like mostly also just like black women like Mm -hmm. like completely running the show and like being the behind the scenes architects of these like entire communities like let me introduce you to this person let me introduce this person let me put you in my show i feel like that it feels like there's this kind of like a sense of collaboration between folk people like you like j words like maasai like kia um i'm just wondering if you could talk about how community shapes and influences your work yeah i mean to me community is pretty much everything um when i moved to brooklyn i found this little community and year after year we keep like getting bigger and better and like the people you just mentioned like those are my those are my that's my family you know what i'm saying like i we do put each other on in those ways and we are featured on each other's project projects and we do continue to like have shows with each other featuring and stuff like this and um i think without that especially without kia j words Masai, stas the boss like all these amazing amazing artists like i don't know what my career would look like at this point without them and like without the larger brooklyn community and oakland community that um i have been building for years or like been a part of um it's really everything like and i think that's I learned that lesson young. Like I like I've tried to say, I was brought up around community of artists. So like this this way of moving isn't new to me. Um I think it's new to a lot of people, but I feel like this is how I've always seen artists move and to me it just mm. felt like um yeah, it's just something that I was supposed to do. So mm. yeah. I hold all those folks super close and I know they hold me close too. And that means a lot. Like that means so much in this industry where like not that many people have your back. You know what I'm saying? So to be able to be around a group of black, you know, women and fams and um, all type of folks, like it's super special to me. It means a lot. 
Hmm. I think it is new to like a lot of people, like being in genuine relationships really with people. But like, I mean, I think there is like a way. I'm sure, like with your dad, let like black cultural production, black art, like requires it. Like these, like exactly. real, genuine, deep, not like surface level, but like these deep relationships where you're actually like very much there for each other. And one thing I appreciate about these relationships as well is like we didn't approach them. Um, just like on a musical level, it wasn't just like, oh, like you're tight, so like we should hang, like we should, you know. It was like people had been recommending us to hang out because of like music and stuff, but it was more so we just vibed as people, and without that, we definitely wouldn't be making no music. <laughs> like, so yeah, I'm glad that, that it was organic. First. Um, so this is a question that I ask everyone I interview. I guess what are the black artistic spaces? in your case, kind of maybe in the music industry or just in general that you dream of? Like if you had a magic wand and could make things entirely your way, like what would the industry, what would the art world, like what would that look like and who would be there? Hmm. Um, and you can take as much time as you want. I feel like it's like an exercise in like actively imagining, so. I think one of the first things is that in the dream world of the, music industry, I think there would be more black people in the executive roles and the roles that like aren't only the artist roles because uh, I find myself time after time talking to multiple white men like about my music and like why they should invest in it and why they should put me on and all this shit and like that's super frustrating and if if there were more black people in those positions, like there, don't get me wrong, there are there are black people doing great at their jobs in those positions. But like, if there were just more, it would be easier for labels to believe in artists <laughs> and like believe that their sound could like make a difference or like even give them a chance to like get some bread, um, to like put out an album. Which like so many times, just these white executives just don't see it. Like they just don't see it. Like the music could be amazing, and they just culturally cannot tap in or like cannot just like take it for face value and believe that you're gonna like not lose them any money um which is so frustrating i would also just love for like black venues to be just at the forefront of like the people who we work with um i think in brooklyn and particular there's like not that many black owned venues that we get to collaborate with or like you know, just make community with, like, I would love for, like, us to be helping out a Black business owner and, like, them to be helping us out with, like, providing a space, which, like, doesn't happen often. Um, and I think that's not only in the music world, but I think it's something that's definitely lacking in, in my dream world. Like, we would have a whole bunch of Black venues to pick from, and they'd be, like, the best venues, and everyone would want to see shit there. Um, and I also think that just... Like, I think black black people, black artists are able to make whatever type of music they want to make now. But I just feel like there's there's a, like a pressure to mold into something that could be converted to like a white genre or like something that like a white artist can copy, um, which mm. is like super stressful and just like I I wish that like black music and black artistry could just exist without. Um, knowing that there's like a white artist or like white execs or like white eyes waiting to like convert that for like 
wider audiences or um, convert that for like a more mainstream, quote unquote, um, like way into the industry. Do you have anything in your life in terms of like projects or just anything in general that you're feeling excited about? I mean, I just saw on your Instagram the One Beat Sahara. Congrats on that. Thank Um, you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to Algeria with a group of people, group of musicians from the U.S. and going to collaborate with some musicians from all over North Africa. So that should be exciting. Um, I have a video that I'm really excited about that's coming out sometime soon. Everything is taken in Oakland. um, I shot the video when I did a show um, in San Francisco last September. And I was... Up until now, I don't have any videos of just home, you know, so this is really important to me. I have, like, some of my family in it, and um, it's for the song Table Set off my album with J Words, Double Down. So I'm excited to put that out and just, like, have people just, like, see Oakland. I got to do some shots in front of the Coliseum, which I'm like, who knows how long this will be here, but, like, it's a really important spot to me. Um, So... I'm excited about that. In reflecting on Sarah Webster Fabio, I'm thinking about who is carrying her legacies forward today in the Bay Area. Black folks who use words to paint pictures, who engage in deep sisterhood and webs of kinship. In the Bay, there is no shortage of talented rappers and singers. We have our own style that's really distinct to the influences of the things that have happened here. The ways that blues turn into funk and that you can hear these lineages and the sound of Bay Area beats. But Sarah's impact also touches the world of academia, Black studies programs that exist throughout the country. Black poetry and Black written word, she shows us that the reach of Black art and Black study are boundless, that they can touch every corner of the world, that what we make in our Black art futures can look like poetry, it can look like a scholarly paper, like an exhibition amongst friends, like a performance in front of a family band. I think the traces of someone like Sarah Webster Fabio are all over the culture, And ever since learning about her, I can't stop seeing her marks in the world. Let this episode be the flowers that she's always deserved. I know her contributions are something that I'll continue to carry with me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raw Material, Visions of Black Futurity. This podcast is a production of SF MoMA. This episode was written, produced, and sound designed by me, Babette Thomas, with production help from Maisa Plant-Graham, Erica Gangsi, Santino Gonzalez, Liza Yeager, and Kevin Carr. The music you heard in this episode is from the illustrious Georgia Ann Muldrow performing as GOT. Be sure to check out her music wherever you listen. You also heard Table Set, Stand My BS, and Stuck Though by Nappy Nina in this episode. Huge thank you to Cheryl Fabio for an incredible interview, as well as allowing us to use excerpts from her thesis film, Rainbow Black, poet Sarah Webster Fabio. We'll be back soon with the next episode of Raw Material. I'll see you then.